0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, October the 11th, 2023. It's been quite a week, of course, dominated by uh, the Middle East and what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip. But to remember our notions of polycrisis, which the New York-based economist Adam Tooze has introduced. Um, It's not just global politics that's in crisis. We live in the age of anxiety. We have the threat of big tech. And of course, the thing that perhaps is joining all the dots is our environmental crisis. Uh, One man who's all too familiar with that is my guest today, John J. Berger. He's a Berkeley-based environmentalist uh very very influential written many books and he has a new cautiously optimistic book out uh solving the climate crisis frontline reports from the race to save the earth it's nice to have a glimmer of optimism in these dark days and uh john is joining us from his office in berkeley california just over the bay Uh, john before we get to the book and the environmental crisis more more specifically do you think in do do you acknowledge the idea of this what what twos calls a polycrisis and is the environmental crisis joining the dots is that the meta crisis of the of the early 21st century
1: actually i think that that expresses it very aptly andrew and the uh, climate crisis actually encompasses so many realms that it, it really entails all of our social interactions and it entails all of our interactions with the natural world. So it is something that pervades our reality today. And I think polycrisis is a very good term for it. It has multiple impacts, of course, upon the natural world and through its impacts on the natural world. Uh, it impacts us, but it also impacts human society and settlements directly. One way to see that, for example, is all the instances of extreme weather and sea level rise. So this is something that uh, it's inescapable, and it's also a polycrisis in the sense that if extreme weather continues accelerating and we face catastrophe upon catastrophe and millions and millions of refugees our social safety net can really become strained to the point that social order begins to degenerate and break down and we lose fundamental institutions that are important to the conduct of a civilized society so in that sense this is a civilizational crisis and it's also an existential crisis
0: civilizational and existential and john i introduced you as an optimist maybe i made a mistake there maybe you're a little darker than i thought tell me a little bit about yourself you've been in this game a while um you've been very influential you're one of the 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 early writers and scientists technologists warning us off nuclear power. How did you get into this in the first place?
1: There are a number of facets to your question, Andrew, and may I address this issue first of optimism versus pessimism, even though it's complicated and we can come back to it in a moment. but. I'm optimistic in the sense, Andrew, that I believe that we have all of the technological capability necessary to solve the climate crisis if we act on it boldly and aggressively and forcefully now with an all of society effort in which all hands are on deck, so to speak. But I'm pessimistic in the sense that Some of the damage that has been done to the life support systems of the earth is truly irreversible. Uh, We don't even know to what degree these effects are irreversible, but we know that since 1970, for example, uh, we've lost something like 70% of the abundance of all vertebrate species. So that's a little bit of a perspective on optimism versus pessimism. I I feel a certain amount of grief at what has happened to the planet and a tremendous degree of worry and apprehension about what might happen if we continue on our path and, and I'll tell you more about what I how I see that path and would
0: characterize it. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> let me, John, let yeah. me uh, let me rephrase the question, maybe sure. sharpen it up a little bit. When did you you as I said, you you you've been on the front lines of this fight and this issue most of your probably all your career. When did you first recognize that there was a huge problem here? Do you remember that?
1: Uh that's a very interesting and a good question and an immediate answer doesn't really pop to mind but i've evolved in in my positions on environmental issues i first began to become engaged with environmental issues back in the early 1970s when i began reading about the dangers of nuclear power which subsequently came to pass in the form of um, Fukushima, Chernobyl uh, disaster in the Ural Mountains, known as the Kishtin disaster, and a variety of other serious releases of radioactive material to the natural environment. So I began to be deeply concerned about the, the risks of nuclear power, and I sensed that this was not something that people were fully aware of. So I wanted to try to spread awareness of that issue. And so I began to work on a book called Nuclear Power, The Unviable Option, a critical look at our energy alternatives. And at that point, um, I felt it incumbent to provide conceptual alternatives to nuclear power. If I was telling people that we couldn't use nuclear technology I felt that I needed to provide alternative energy pathways beyond fossil fuels and beyond coal because we knew even then that fossil fuels were endangering the climate and the environment. Uh, The first way perhaps this became generally known, (coughs) excuse me, was when we began to experience a tremendous amount of acid rain in the northeastern United States. So as I wrote Nuclear Power, I devoted about 40% of the book to alternative energy technologies like solar and wind and geothermal, which back in the early 1970s were in a much more Uh, I won't say embryonic state, but in an earlier stage of commercialization, there were a lot of problems technologically and economically that had to be overcome. But still, their promise was clear. And at that time, people who were proposing that we build a thousand nuclear power plants all over the United States were... Uh, essentially trying to create a false dichotomy. Either we have to build nuclear power plants in order to provide all the energy that we need on the planet, or we'll have to vastly increase our production of coal with all its um, sulfur emissions and mercury emissions and terrible health effects. And I sensed that that was a false dichotomy, and so that's when I began to research clean energy options as a result of that research and that subsequent book i was invited to become friends of the earth's energy director in san francisco this was circa 1976 and and working for friends of the earth i began to become aware that the environmental movement had sort of an organic or a systemic problem in that it was constantly defending the perimeter, a steadily shrinking perimeter of natural resources that were still relatively undisturbed or pristine, whereas these forces were, <coughs> they, they were pressing in <coughs> on this remaining um, area of, of relatively intact resources. and. I felt that we needed to begin a more proactive phase of the environmental movement based upon environmental restoration so that we could actually expand this perimeter of healthy natural resources. This was, again, from an environmental perspective. So I researched, I I had this notion that it ought to be possible to bring back Uh, damaged resources to some type of health or some approximation of their antecedent natural conditions, the ecological structure and functioning of those ecosystems. So I, I sent out a questionnaire around the country asking people in various relevant organizations if they knew of environmental restoration projects. And they did, I gathered the information, I went and talked to people all over the country who were actually doing it. And I wrote a book called Restoring the Earth, How Americans Are Renewing Our Damaged Environment. And I edited an ecological restoration directory. And and, and I, I subsequently saw that-
0: That was in 85,
1: right? Yeah, that's that's correct. That I, I then saw that this did have some relevance in the energy area i went on to write another book on clean energy because i i perceived this tremendous um, increasing technological advancement and economic progress within the renewable energy sector so it became more and more apparent to me that renewable energy could uh, have a very positive impact on protecting the climate. And I had become aware of climate problems as a teacher at a community college called Vista College, where I was teaching a class in energy technology and another in energy politics. And I I informed myself a bit about what was happening to the climate and, and was at that point very dimly aware of the full, panoply of risks but I, I did understand that that it had a, a very ominous potential I didn't realize how rapidly we would realize that ominous potential that that though is is kind of an awareness that I carried with me as I <coughs> began my further studies on clean energy technology and I subsequently wrote a book called, Charging ahead the business of renewable energy and what it means for America. And I think that was the first time that I really made an explicit connection between clean energy technology and its potential and the need to, at that time, reduce American oil dependency on the Middle East. Subsequently, we have now become the world's largest producer of oil and the largest consumer of oil, I believe. And I, I think we're also the largest producer of natural gas and the third largest producer of coal. So th- this is another topic we need to get our own yeah. And the issue of exported. obviously the Middle
0: East and oil is a piece, an important piece of our poly crisis. We've done a number of shows, um, John, on the role of the market. There are people who head up industry groups like Bob Keefe, who believe that American capitalism can be leveraged centrally in this fight. And there are others like Jason Hickel, I'm sure you're familiar with him, and Tim Jackson, who believe that there's an incompatibility between capitalism, the market, and addressing climate change. What do you think?
1: I actually think that it is possible to address climate change within the context of capitalism, because capitalism is the dominate i'm sorry the dominant economic system throughout the entire world and if we're going to predicate solving the climate crisis on um, com- completely converting from capitalism to something else i i think we're just going to never get to the the crux of fronting the climate issues, which I think that we can do either through a democratic socialism or through an enlightened and reformed capitalism, where there is a major role for the federal government and for state governments in leading the global climate transition. And in my book, Solving the Climate Crisis, I lay out laws and policies that I think The federal government ought to be um, adopting in addition i i lay out things that states um, cities and communities are doing um, and i also look at western europe and then i look at what individuals can do so
0: i we're going to get to that after the break we are talking with john j berger the author of solving the climate crisis a cautiously optimistic book about how to address climate change? Um, we talked earlier about the polycrisis, our age of disorder, and I want to thank our sponsor of this show, the Disorder Podcast, put on by my friend Jason Pack. Um, it focuses on this disordered world, this polycritical world, and how to address the very issues we're talking about today. The latest issue uh, of uh, Disorder focuses on the environment. We're going to run a short. Add for this or uh, this the Disorder podcast, and then I want to come back uh, to our conversation with John j Berger and talk more specifically ab- about his new book and how, indeed, we can solve the climate crisis. So don't go away, anyone. I'm Jason Pack, and I'm Alex Hall Hall, and this is Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? How did we get here? What can we do to fix it? The Disorder Podcast is out now. Make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds and check it out it's an excellent podcast i subscribe and i strongly suggest everyone who likes Keenan will like disorder we're talking with john jay Berger, the author of solving the climate crisis frontline reports from the race to save the earth uh john is this your joining the dots book putting everything together in terms of your very distinguished career on the front lines of uh, the climate crisis
1: i think it is andrew in that I I kind of unify my interest in the climate crisis, climate solutions, energy technology, and also ecological restoration and the use of natural climate solutions to address the progressive and gradual decarbonization of the atmosphere to restore the atmosphere to a semblance of its healthy pre-industrial condition. Because as we know, the more greenhouse gas we have aloft in the atmosphere, the more heat we trap in the atmosphere and the more destabilized the climate becomes. I understand that just in the last 25 years, we have taken on board on planet earth, the equivalent of billions of of, um, the amount of heat that would be released by exploding billions of atomic weapons and even one atomic weapon generates a tremendous amount of heat it reaches a temperature of a hundred degrees centigrade in a at the center of a nuclear explosion which is even hotter than
0: the. Te- well, that, that old bumper sticker i'm sure you saw it in berkeley you're a berkeley guy um, john suggested one nuclear weapon can ruin your day
1: <laughs> yeah i should say so
0: so let's address the book um there are three Three dimensions to the book, the technological, the ecological and the social. Let's begin with the technological. Do we have the technology now? You said we did with wind and solar to address this issue.
1: Well, we definitely do. Um, We can produce all the electricity that we need through wind and solar and through geothermal power. Um, We can also use geothermal heat pumps. We have the potential eventually of developing wave power, but there's no technological obstacle to producing all, that means 100% of our energy needs from the renewable technologies. And this has been amply documented by Professor Mark Z. Jacobson at Stanford University. He's an environmental engineering and an atmospheric and climate scientist. And he has done amazing research probably for the past 25 to 30 years in which the claim that I just made is really scientifically documented. So we do have that capacity to provide for all of our power. We could provide all of our heat without setting things on fire as Bill McKibben likes to say. There have been some industries and some technological applications of energy that are particularly challenging to decarbonize. One of those is the manufacturer of steel, the manufacturer of some other metals and the manufacturer of cement, for example. But we now, as I show in solving the climate crisis, there are now technologies that can essentially uh, greatly reduce the carbon footprint of an industry like cement and concrete, which this is currently an industry, it's the cement industry is a $300 billion industry a year and the concrete industry is a trillion dollar a year industry. So these are immense industrial Enterprises and they produce six to eight percent of all of our energy related greenhouse gases. We could um, now greatly reduce and ultimately eliminate that using new technological processes. I can go into the technology.
0: Yeah, uh, John, let, let me. We've done some shows on the implications of all this new technology, and not everyone's quite as optimistic as you. We did one with Siddharth Kara, who has a new book out, Cobalt Red, how the blood of the Congo powers our lives, suggesting that our obsession now with alternative energy is creating a new kind of neo-slave economy in, um, in the Congo. Are there implications for this new technology which we're not aware of, which we will become aware of as we became aware of the dark implications of industrial technology um, in the 20th century.
1: Well, let me just address the implications of what you were just saying about cobalt and some of the terrible and unjust conditions under which some of our um, strategic materials are obtained today. It is possible, and I know that Tesla has already done so, to produce batteries that don't require some of these uh, elements like cobalt. Um, I think they have produced um, a battery that doesn't have cobalt and that doesn't have nickel in it. Uh, The future will be batteries that perhaps use an iron phosphate technology or some other technology that is not so dependent upon these relatively rare elements and uh, i think that we are also attempting to become more self-reliant in our energy supply and source these materials from the united states where we can more carefully regulate their um, environmental footprint if you will but there is no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to extracting materials from the earth there are inevitable adverse environmental impacts but it's a question of weighing these impacts and is it worse to in in, in a perfect world to have the environmental damage of a mining operation which to some degree can be ameliorated by mined land reclamation um, versus um, setting the whole climate awry and creating this vast um, array of, of catastrophic consequences. I think that the answer is clear. And I think that we have to use electricity to convert the transportation sector. Are there any other is there another dark underbelly, if you will, of the clean energy transition? I think that there are environmental impacts of any large systemic energy transition or development. But as I say, I think you have to look at the trade-offs. There will be damage to desert lands if you put a solar power plant in the desert. Uh, we can mitigate some of this damage. We can put more solar on rooftops. As I fly over the United States, I see millions of rooftops that that would be ideal for solar and that are in relatively hot, well, insulated areas and yet there's no solar adoption there so that's a an area yeah it's
0: I... astonishing really Let, let's move on to the second dimension uh, john sure uh the ecological dimension what, what what do you mean by this and what's its place in 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 solving the, the climate crisis
1: there there are many ways for example for us to relate to the natural world that we can take old growth forests and we can clear cut them and then we can have cattle um grazing on that land and in the tropical sun that soil becomes degraded the land gets worn out and we've lost a valuable natural carbon sink when we say carbon sink we mean a natural um, um I, I'm thinking in terms of an ecologist, sort of an ecological compartment where carbon can be stored for various lengths of time. If we do it right, trees can be standing for centuries. Soils can be relatively undisturbed and can also lock carbon beneath the surface of the soil for indefinite periods of time. Uh, if we plant the right plants to rejuvenate um, soil that has been badly abused and eroded and degraded. Certain plants will send deep roots down into the soil when those roots die. They take the carbon that they've pulled out of the atmosphere during photosynthesis and that carbon then becomes incorporated into the soil and enriches the soil. Carbon is like the fuel for uh soil ecosystems and if we put carbon back into the soil um, soil bacteria will put nitrogen back into the soil through plant roots leguminous crops so we need to be concerned about soil health and i write
0: right and we we've done a lot of shows john on on soil um one earlier this week with um Dixon Despomier, you're probably familiar with his work. He thinks that we should turn all our buildings into farms, essentially, and turn the city into the countryside. Whereas others, like Tony Hiss, who's been on the show, suggest that we simply need to give back half the land to nature. Where do you stand on this? Should we be like Despomier is saying, turning cities into farms, or, or should we split the world into cities and farms?
1: Well, I think the world is already split between cities and farms. Uh, I really haven't studied this notion of a massive reliance upon agric- indoor agriculture. I think it has certain advantages that that I'm familiar with in terms of lowering the use of water and being able to farm vertically and saving land. But I think we have vast areas we have billions of acres of rangeland and cropland already um, devoted to agriculture i think that our first priority ought to be to use that land in an environmentally sustainable way and to use regenerative agricultural techniques that have been pioneered by some of the people i write about in solving the climate crisis people like rancher gabe brown for example people like uh john wick at the Marin carbon project uh, um yeah we
0: i used to do a show called regenerate and i've got many friends uh focusing on regenerative agriculture in fact last month in munich i was at the dld um circular economy where regenerative agriculture was central there's a big difference John between regenerative agriculture and organic isn't there
1: I, I believe so I mean in organic regenerative agriculture can be done organically in which you don't use any herbicides you don't use any pesticides um, perhaps you don't use any chemical fertilizers but you would have probably animals grazing off uh, the forage that grows on the land and the, and as they pass ar- through the landscape <laughs> providing natural fertilizer for the soil. So um, that would, would be one form of organic agriculture. Regenerative agriculture might not necessarily meet all the detailed criteria of being organic, but it might nonetheless um, improve the quality of the soil, make it less um, uh, less prone to drought, for example, because when you use regenerative agriculture, as you know from the previous shows you referenced, <clears throat> what's likely to happen is you're going to improve the water holding capacity of the soil. You're going to protect the surface of the soil by keeping roots in the soil year round and preventing erosion and and slowing evaporation. So it's, it's a healthier environment for plants to grow. Right, John, my biggest
0: question, you mentioned Gabe Brown, and there are a lot of pioneering farmers on the regenerative agriculture front, but can this be done at scale?
1: I absolutely am totally convinced that it can be done at scale. I think it has to be organized and incentivized I think that um, paying farmers for each ton of carbon dioxide that they remove from the atmosphere and incorporate in the soil through regenerative agricultural techniques would actually be one of the most cost effective things that we could do in order to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. I think that when you compare the costs of these schemes to use engineered devices at hundreds and hundreds of dollars a ton to take carbon out of the atmosphere mechanically and then somehow compress it and transport it and store it in the ground it's very energy intensive it's materials intensive it's complicated it's prone to losses and as i say expensive whereas i don't know the precise figures and there is no one figure because landscapes differ. But perhaps on the order of $50 a ton, $25 a ton, $100 a ton of CO2, we can pay farmers to get CO2 out of the atmosphere. And as I say, we have billions of acres of land that can be used for this purpose in addition to forests, which is another aspect of natural climate solutions. But someone like Gabe Brown, who over a period of 35 years, let's say, has treated his land properly, now has 92 tons of carbon in the top four feet of each acre of his land. So imagine if um, across billions of acres of land around the world, we had a few extra tons every year um, being incorporated into the soil that would have a very significant long-term impact on drawing down carbon from the atmosphere.
0: We need to scale, Gabe Brown. And let's get to the third dimension, which I think is the most problematic, which is the social dimension, although it's really the political dimension. Do you see this, John, as the most problematic, the greatest challenge um, of of addressing the, the politics of all this?
1: I, I, I do, Andrew, and it's an extreme, extremely difficult aspect of this problem, and it's one reason why I'm not ebullient in my optimism about how we're going to address this crisis, because the problem is that unlike America back in, let's say, the 1930s or early 40s, we're no longer a united nation. We Back then, we were more homogeneous. We had Congress and the American people united behind the war effort and in favor of all of the systemic reforms that Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, instituted during the New Deal. We need something like a New Deal for climate, by the way. I've never said that before, but I think that the kinds of reforms that are necessary require a kind of a unified nation. And one of the problems we have is that for political gain, there are interest groups that are driving us apart using highly emotional, cultural issues that inflame our passions, and yet, over the long term, are much, much less consequential than the fate of the Earth, the fate of the climate. So that that's the fact that we're divided. And Roosevelt had a united Congress. We have a dysfunctional Congress where one party cannot even lead itself, much less provide leadership to the nation. So this is is a crisis in leadership and we need good leadership, but in order to be good followers and to be able to coalesce around a sensible, scientifically sound uh, climate policy we need an educated public and our educational system has failed people. There have been surveys that showed that in 2012, about a quarter of the American public thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Many people don't know what carbon dioxide is and they don't know that it's created by burning things and they don't understand that humans are responsible for climate change. So. Given that lack of fundamental understanding, it's hard for us to count on people's support for policies that seem to them um, out in left field and and relatively radical and unnecessary because if we're not causing climate change, then um, if God is responsible for the climate, then we don't need to do anything right now.
0: John, uh, your book comes with um, an introduction by Senator Russ Feingold. You've been in around Washington, D.C. now for a long time. As as you said earlier, you're one of the first people to address the problems of nuclear power. Are you concerned that there aren't politicians? I mean, Al Gore isn't in power anymore. Are there still figures in Washington, D.C., who you think can and I'm borrowing your language here, begin to build a new deal for the climate?
1: I I think potentially, yes, there are people with great um, understanding about the climate crisis and a commitment to public welfare. But in order for politicians to lead, they need to basically feel that where they're going has public support. And the problem is that the, the movement in favor of a very active and bold set of move, moves on climate change has been relatively fragmented and the environmental movement itself doesn't really speak with one voice. We need something even far broader than the environmental movement. The environmental movement has to coalesce with labor and business interests. And we have to have a powerful national movement. Just one analogy might be the civil rights movement of the 1960s or the the support that Roosevelt had that I alluded to earlier. But if we're fragmented in what we're asking for and we're not providing a coherent um, base on which politicians can stand when they go out and take what seems to them like a risky position that they're going to be attacked for that that is a problem i think the leadership is there but i think we have to call upon it and i think we have to mobilize ourselves i think we need many dimensions of a climate movement some of it is a mass movement with demonstrations with civil disobedience um and A lot of it involves political organizing. People want to know what they can do. And they're told by, let's say, the oil company that you're responsible for the climate crisis and take shorter showers or eat more vegetables. But what we really need is a comprehensive national strategic climate plan that's science-based with timetables and milestones. Are you
0: believe you're going to get that? I mean, you said you were cautious. I introduced you as cautiously optimistic in the Washington DC of October, 2023, it's hard to even imagine Congress opening up for business, let alone fashioning this. Maybe that's the subject of another book. I wonder also, John, whether there are credible critiques of some of this stuff politically. Lucas Chancel, the French, writer was on the show a couple of years ago talking about uh when the healing the environment means hurting the poor of course we have an ongoing debate in the us in terms of the fate of coal miners in west virginia people like politicians like joe manchin are ambivalent because their constituency will be it seems at least negatively impacted if we move away from fossil fuel I think are it, there going to be casualties of this inevitably, John? Do we need to be honest?
1: I I think that in every transition there are winners and losers, but I think the winners will far outnumber the losers. And Andrew, uh, for example, we have in total three hundred and sixty thousand workers in the coal and oil industry. We already have three million plus workers now in the clean energy industry and if we make a rapid transition, we can produce many millions of new good paying jobs in clean energy technology. We can certainly afford to offer retraining, um, early retirement, other benefits to ease the transition of fossil fuel workers and we can also redeploy those workers. We literally have hundreds of thousands of abandoned mines in this country and 57,000 abandoned oil wells in the country. We could put some fossil fuel industry workers uh, to to work, um, trying to reclaim at land and undo some of the damage done by the fossil fuel industries. And we can also, as Dan Riker of Stanford University has pointed out, repurpose some of the fossil fuel industry installations into clean energy um, production nodes or transmission centers. And there's absolutely no reason why somebody who's working in the fossil fuel industry can't be retrained and can't find a position in a clean energy industry. I, I, I don't see that as a huge problem uh, maybe you can enlighten me on what are some of the other dangers of this transition you allude to injustice and i see the well, this was who
0: who sees um who sees the impact particularly on the the yellow vest movement in france um uh in the context of the shall we say the elites and their embrace of environmentalist environmentalism at the cost of poorer people i
1: don't think that that necessarily has to be the case and i think that we can design policies and to some extent president biden did so in the inflation reduction act where there are preferen there is preferential treatment for disadvantaged areas and uh, where there are programs that provide low-income people with subsidies for home insulation or subsidies to buy clean vehicles. I I think that the answer is to properly design um, these stimulus programs so that they actually contribute to um, social, environmental, and economic justice rather than perpetuate some of the, the injustices that we have seen um, during the fossil fuel industrial age, for example.
0: Well, it's important stuff, important conversation. One way of beginning to solve the climate crisis is by reading John J. Berger's new book, Solving the Climate Crisis, Frontline Reports from the Race to Save the Earth. Final question, John. Yes. One thing that people can begin with, one thing that everyone can do to begin to solve the, fact the climate crisis.
1: Well, I think one thing that everybody can do who is a, an adult in the United States can be to make sure that they have current voter registration and go out and vote and protect our democracy, because if we lose our democracy in the United States, and as we know, it has been threatened and is being threatened, we will lose the ability to save and protect the climate.